are we indexing for attendance or are we indexing for output? Like if what you want is really good output and if what you are sincerely most interested in is the bottom line, you're best off giving people a lot of freedom to work in the way that they work best while bringing people together in person intentionally for a specific output. Oh, my friends, you are about to meet one of the most fabulous women I know. Her name is Dr. Leslie Carr, and she is a psychologist and an expert in how trauma, stress, culture, and digital technology impact the mind. She consults and speaks to audiences about how they can survive and even thrive amidst challenging or adverse circumstances. Leslie's been active in mental health advocacy and public psychoeducation for almost 15 years. And her work as an advisor and consultant in this space has been featured in the LA Times, ABC News, and the Huffington Post, among many other places. I do believe I've seen you show up in the context of Dr. Drew too, if I'm not. Yes, I was on his online TV show. That was in, a lot of fun. In all the pop culture places too. Leslie is also the host of an e-course on how to use technology mindfully and the host of a podcast called The Nature of Nurture. Don't miss the episode called The Sexy Lie, y'all. That podcast is fire. And the Nature of Nurture podcast delves deep into the nature versus nurture debate by exploring how our minds and mental health are shaped by lived experience. Find out more on lesliecar.com. But people, Leslie, welcome, my sister. Bronwyn, it is so incredibly nice to be here with you right now. I just cannot even tell you. I love I mean, every minute I get to spend with you. Every time I can be in your presence, I will take it. And the reason I wanted to have you come and talk to my people right now is that I know that you have been on the front lines of working with real people in real jobs, navigating real shit show mental health issues yeah. in corporate America, right? Yeah, I mean, you have been out working with people, but also interviewing a lot of people on the front lines yeah. And talk to us about what you're hearing from people inside corporate environments and what it's like to be a human being in 2023 trying to make a living in this world. Oh man, that is a big and juicy question. And I'm so excited to dive right into that. Yeah. In addition to all of the work that I've been doing for the past decade plus, I spent this past summer specifically Interviewing people who work in corporate settings to try to figure out what was and was not working for them. I wanted to figure out at the level of my own consulting and speaking, I wanted to be able to make sure that I was speaking to the issues that people needed to hear me speak about the most. And so I started interviewing people and mostly was interviewing people who work in HR, wellness, or talent management in corporate settings. And I kind of wanted to figure out what to the extent that they have their finger on the pulse of what's going on and want to know a little bit more about that. And it was extremely enlightening. A lot of what I learned did not surprise me at all on the basis of knowing people who work in those settings, working one-on-one -on -one with people who work in those settings. Like I knew that people were dealing with a lot of burnout and morale is low. And there's a lot, just a lot of drama going on right now around going back to the office or not going back to the office. People are, you know, if they're working entirely remotely, that comes with its own set of challenges. If they're being asked to come back to the office full time, that comes with a different set of challenges. I sort of knew yeah. that that stuff was going to be difficult. 
What surprised me the most about all of those conversations, and this is not to call anybody out or to make anyone feel uh, like they're being exposed here, but because I was talking mostly with people who work in HR and talent management, a lot of the feedback that I was getting was that those people in particular were struggling. Like they started opening up to me as people tend to do because they knew that it was a totally confidential space. And they just were saying like, I personally am really struggling with feeling caught in the middle of corporate leadership and the rest of the workforce, sometimes having to implement policies I don't necessarily always agree with. Like it's just, they felt like they were really struggling. And so that's what brings me to where we are today. Yeah. So when you think about that, because I know that that's very much an HR specific issue. If you're a leader in HR and talent management, you're definitely literally in that position of being in the middle. But there's so much about that that I think a lot of leaders can relate to, Mm -hmm. where it may be that HR is in charge of rolling it out, but it's anyone in management and leadership that's having to toe the line of what gets rolled down from the top. And I believe in my heart of hearts, and I think you do too, that leaders at the top, the C-level that are making these decisions, whether they're good or bad decisions is debatable. They are all doing the best they can with what they believe, right? 100%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it is also true that the leaders who have to then implement all those practices, whether or not they're good or bad, we don't know. I mean, the reality is, Leslie, nobody knows, I feel like, what the right call is on some level. So I think while you're speaking to the uniqueness of the HR perspective, I think a lot of people can relate to that. So based on that, what do you make of it? Like, what are people supposed to do? It's a really good question. I mean, I think one thing that I just want to say to emphasize what you just said, and maybe even take it one step further, is I think that one of the things that's interesting about what's going on right now in this space where everybody is just doing their best and absolutely, I believe all the time, everybody is just doing their best. I think a lot of times policies are implemented, not even necessarily because let's say a leader believes in their heart of hearts that it's the right thing to do, but because they are, they're doing what they think they should, like they are running certain programming. I'll use that language as the psychologist in me speaking here. They're kind of running certain programming that is a result of the way that they were raised and the paradigm that they were raised in. So if they were to kind of check in with themselves or if they could be really well advised, they might see. So for example, coming back to the office full time, there are very few industries where that's truly necessary. Some work cannot be remote. No one is working for like airline transportation safety. Like I'm thinking about the people that the yeah. controllers that are like calling in the plane, right. Or telling them what to yeah. do. They're not doing that remotely. Like there are some jobs that cannot be done remotely. Lots of jobs can be though. So then mm-hmm. we have to think about if you're going to ask people to come back into the office, Yeah. what specifically do you want the results of that to be like, why would you be asking people to do that? And you know, is it truly what's necessary? Is it actually even what's setting people up for success? Like, is it going to deliver the best output to have people in the office? But I think a lot of people, a lot of leaders want everybody back in the office full time because that was the paradigm that they were raised in, even Mm. if I mean that kind of in a corporate sense. Mm. And they're running sometimes old playbooks. And I Mm. think one of the things that has my attention right now is just the shifting paradigm that I think we're in the middle of. This system was built by people and at a time when the world was really different. Today's corporate environment was built 
by men previously who largely had women at home taking care of all of their domestic and personal responsibilities. There was somebody else getting the groceries, cooking the food, picking up Mm. the dry cleaning. And now we have people that are expected to do all of those things, sometimes independently, sometimes in partnership with another person, but they're doing all of this stuff while holding down a full-time job. Then you put COVID on top of it and everything. The paradigm has shifted. Yeah. And I don't think we have fully buffered up to, we haven't caught up to that yet. We haven't absorbed it yet. There's a couple of things that are coming to me right now. The first thing I'm thinking about is that is entirely true. And I think the five days butts and seats vibe is not great. It's the same attitude that was problematic even during COVID when certain types of managers were like, I need to see emails coming in to my inbox from you between 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. so that I know that you're working and not screwing around. Like that same mentality was the butts and seats mentality of the before times. But I am thinking about setting patriarchy aside, setting, um, (laughs) (laughs) so which is really hard to set aside, setting Mm -hmm. aside the unfair gender norms and, and disproportionate amount of responsibility that women bear. Just pretend that's set aside for a second. There is, I think truth to the idea that when humans are in a room together, magic is afoot. Absolutely. And I think about creative industries. I think about creative teams. I think about just my own capacity for creativity when I'm working with clients or with groups. It's not even close. Like in person is so much juicier than Zoom, right? Are you landing, Leslie, in a place where hybrid really is the right call, where we're intentional about when we come together and why, because that energy feedback loop between humans in the same room together is so, so real. It's why I like squeezed the life out of you when I saw you in Woodside in person. Like that shit is real. How does that fit into how you're seeing things? To answer your question really bluntly, it's funny. I'm so loath to admit my prejudices, but I have to admit that I have come down pretty squarely on the idea that a hybrid work model is sort of the work model of the future. Yeah, I think it's really important when you're bringing people together to be intentional about what you want the outcome to be. Because there is, first of all, no doubt that you're right in the sense that magic happens when human beings come together. There's also something very important for us at an animal level about Mm. being in physical proximity to another person. That's not to say that people always want to hug their coworkers, but certainly like when I'm in your presence, Bronwyn, I just want to squeeze you. (laughs) That is a very important part of being alive. Oxytocin is released. It has real deal benefits for the brain. When we are physically in contact with people that we're having a good and welcome experience with. That said, it's really, really interesting to me to tie this back to the creative process specifically. Because a lot of, there's just tons of evidence, anecdotal and otherwise, to support the idea that a lot of what fuels creativity is giving people more freedom to move in the form of, you know, there's a reason why we do our best thinking in the shower, right? Yes, ma'am, I've been preaching this. Yes, and it actually is scientifically speaking, we can tie it back to something called the alpha brainwave state that when we are in, right? For the listeners that can't see you, Bronwyn is I am very like excited right now. Right now. Yeah. I literally just gave a keynote about this. Keep going. Love it. Love it. Yeah. That 
When we are allowed, when we give ourselves permission to, and when we are given permission to let our thinking go a little soft and just to sort of be in a relaxed but alert state, which is often facilitated by doing things like showering, because everybody knows what it's like to sort of zone out in a hot shower. Yeah. Really similarly, it happens if you're on just like a really wonderful hike where you can relax and take in nature and walk at a comfortable pace and that kind of thing. Yeah. The creative juices start flowing. Mm -hmm. And I always think about that when I think about the type of employer that just wants to see butts in seats, like they want that email at eight o'clock in the morning, they want that email at 7 p.m. or they want visibility on an employee at all hours, digitally or in person, they want to see butts in seats. I always think to myself, especially just depending on what the output is supposed to be, I always think to myself, if there's any ounce of creativity that is required of a person, and if we're honest, a certain amount of creativity is required for sending emails. Yes, it is. Creativity is is. required for pretty much everything on some level, just to sort of think freely and have that be fruitful. Do you really need to see someone? Like, is it, are we indexing for attendance? Or are we indexing for output? Like if what you want is really good output and if what you are sincerely most interested in is the bottom line, you're best off giving people a lot of creativity to work or freedom, I mean to say, to work in the way that they work best while bringing people together in person intentionally for a specific output. What I love about what you're saying, Leslie, is that when we call a gathering, when we set a meeting, when we do all the things, that question of what am I solving for? What am I indexing for? Mm -hmm. Can drive creativity in the form of the gathering, right? Like, why am I gathering these people together? What am I hoping to achieve? And what's the best mode for that? And that might be one of the unintended gifts of COVID, if there even could be one, is that it forced us to completely abandon the old forms of working. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, I think, at least for a lot of the leaders I work with, there's so much pressure financially. You know, the numbers that people are trying to hit, they don't go down. They only go up and to the right. And the pressure is enormous. And so in a pressure cooker, we are far more likely to do what we know best, which is grind, grab, lock down, get the people into their seats and say, get cracking, right? Yeah, yeah. So what is the reset opportunity there? What's the mindset shift that you think yields better results than that? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's twofold to me. So part of what I hear in that, and there's no doubt that you are describing something that's very real, is what I would call a false belief system that people are just laboring under false beliefs. Yeah, There is a belief that has not been investigated that you get the best output by grinding. And I think that if we take that thought out, put it under a microscope, look at it a little bit and kind of inspect whether we actually really believe that that is true, can we afford to update that way of thinking? I think the sort of harsh reality is that grinding is not the thing that leads to the best output. It doesn't always, depending on what your metrics are, it's not always the thing that's going to deliver success. And often it's actually quite counterproductive. So for example, that mentality right now is leading to a lot of very real burnout 
And that burnout is resulting in people oftentimes leaving their jobs, even during that period of time that everyone was calling the great resignation over the course of the past couple of years. There's been a lot of quote unquote quiet quitting. We can unpack that phrase if anybody wants to, because it's a complex one. But people are, they're bowing out, they're tapping out. When you're dealing with human beings, you have to really think about what's going to set that person up for success. The analogy that always comes to me is like, if you were to tell somebody to try to drive a car with a literally empty gas tank, the same person that thinks you should grind for success might be like, well, clearly you have to put gas in the tank. It's like human beings are not designed to have in sort of interminable output without ever putting gas in the tank, changing the oil. Like we're not designed to grind forever. We can grind in short spurts, but we're and not. I, and I also think about just the younger generations coming up. For those of us Gen Xers, and if there's still some lingering boomers in the workforce doing their thing, I would say that our generations both have in common that belief. I'm almost 50 years old. I 100% Leslie am mm -hmm. trying so hard to rewire my brain away from that belief that grinding gets the best results. It is really effing hard to replace that belief. It is something I it fight is. every single day of my life. I fight that belief. It drives me nuts. But then I look at the younger generations and they're just different than us. And we can make all kinds of, you know, we can stick our finger in and feel for the wind and say what we think is driving that. But the reality is, innovation, and I'm thinking in the tech space specifically, we've come so far so fast. And part of it, I think, is because we've all signed up for a certain amount of abuse at work in the name of progress, in the name of career goals. These young people are like, fuck that. Absolutely. Won't do it. So I'm wondering if there was a thought you could replace that with, a mantra that could replace you get the best work by grinding. What would we replace that with in a perfect world? Well, two thoughts are coming to mind. One is that on an individual level, I think it could be really interesting for people to ask themselves to think of any experience that they can conjure where something felt easy and it was still successful or the end results felt good or, and there are lots of analogies for this, right? I think anyone who is a really good cook, for example, knows that like the food isn't going to taste better just because you really stressed out over it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's not, certain things are not made better by working harder. Yeah. And a really powerful example that's coming to mind for me, because it's very real. I was once in my life trained as a lifeguard and it's interesting to think that when people are drowning, if they're like really struggling with swimming, it is the struggle and the anxiety that goes into the struggle that is self-defeating at the level of like, you could drown if you keep fighting or you can flip over and float. And when people have the presence of mind to realize that all they need to do is turn over, like inhale, yeah. buoy themselves up for, and yeah. everyone might do well to sort of just imagine floating in water right now. It is a lot harder to drown when you're in that physical and mental state. Oh, that's such a good metaphor. Yeah. Like we're all, there's so much anxiety that's going into like kicking, 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 and everybody is just exhausting themselves. Yeah. And it's, 
I know what you're talking about when you say that it's just so hard, even in yourself to kind of rewire that belief. Yeah. It's, it is baked into our nervous systems from our ancestors and from the generations that came before us. But those ancestors and those generations, a lot of times they were living in wintry environments with no indoor heat or electricity. They were going to the bathroom and outhouses. Like this is, we are the end result of that kind of fight for survival. And one of the things that I think about a lot these days, I know a lot of people are thinking about these days, is that we are at an interesting point in the evolution of the human species yeah. where we can afford to think about things like self-actualization more yeah. because for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, our safety needs are met. We are sleeping in warm beds. We have indoor plumbing. Yeah, We can afford to get up and ask ourselves the big questions of like, what's going to make me thrive? Yeah. And what's so devastating, Leslie, is that knowing how much privilege we have in yeah. that sense. We have the privilege of a refrigerator full of food. Yes. Half of it, we don't even eat. It goes bad. With that tremendous privilege, there's a part of me that feels really terrible about the fact that we're not actually reaping what we worked so hard to sow, which is space to think, how can I be a blessing in my world today? How can I do work that brings me joy? How do I spread joy? How do I do what I do from the nine to five, but with great integrity and great presence of mind? And there's something about it that makes me feel really sad. Like we're missing mm -hmm. this colossal opportunity to live better because we are hardwired for suffering, it seems like. Yeah, I'm noticing, I almost feel like a little emotional hearing you say that because it's so true. And part of what it makes me think of is... We all are born into this one precious life. Yes. And so few of us ever truly live, right? I can think of times in my life when I have been on a beach, for example, let's say watching a sunset and sincerely enjoying the experience of the company that I was with and that kind of stuff. But I can also think of times that I've been on a beach and my head was just like in my email inbox. And that That's latter right. experience is something that I think we all are far too familiar with. It's That's the experience right. we're all having far too much of the time. That's right. And so actually that leads me back to one of the questions I wanted to ask you is you were talking to all of these professionals and asking them like, what's working for them? What's not working for them? Mm -hmm. I would love to hear just anecdotally, like what did you tend to hear yeah. was working for people as they navigate this time? And what did you tend to hear was not working for people at this time? Yeah, what comes to mind for me when I think about that is the difference in environments. So for example, I'm less inclined to say for one person what was working, what was not working. What I noticed more in aggregate, which was fascinating to me, is that when people are working in environments where their leaders have some sense of valuing mental health and the humanity of their workforce, and I can unpack a couple different versions of what that looks like, but when people work in those environments, they tend to fare better. So for example, I did absolutely anecdotally notice that when companies are run by women, there tends to be a little bit more of a sense of respect and appreciation for the idea that people have lives outside of the office, that yeah. you know, that you can have to leave work because you need to go pick up your kid. It doesn't mean that you're not a dedicated employee. Like there's right. more of that in female leadership. And then similarly, regardless of whether a person's 
gender expression or anything like that. There are plenty of examples of that I heard of like, let's say male leaders that actually like really value mental health and have companies that have really well-developed wellness programs. Like I was really impressed by some of the people that I spoke with who worked at companies, who work at companies that have really robust wellness programs where they're constantly being given access to resources that are benefiting their mental health and creating healthy conversations around what it means to be a person in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the employees that work for those corporations are the whole workforce is thriving more than people where people are really rigidly adhering to an old world paradigm of, I just want butts in seats because I'm actually, if we could really unpack that, it's kind of like, because I'm scared and I feel out of control and getting butts in seats makes me feel like I am more in control of this out of control situation. It's so true. It's so true. It reminds me of that. Like, I think of there's like two kinds of teachers in the world. There's the teachers that are in it because they like control. And there's the teachers that are in it because they like turning brains on. Yeah. Right. It's the same. It's the same kind of vibe. Right. Absolutely. And I think that it's really important to just note that a lot of this is a very fear-driven, scarcity mindset-oriented approach to work and getting results. And that's not necessarily to make it wrong because again, people are doing their best, Yeah, but we usually do not get our best results when what we're being driven by is fear. Mm. That is not in any environment what creates the best results. God, it's so interesting because I think the tech universe... I started doing PR for tech companies in like 1998 or something like that Mm. back in the day. And I would say that the dominant means by which some of the biggest innovations have happened in tech has been a cocktail of fear, anxiety, but also ambition and just such a deep desire to be a part of something big. And the part of something big part, I think is, fantastic. I think ambition Mm -hmm. is not a dirty word. I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think it's when those two things get mixed up and the whole fear thing creeps into it. When I think about Steve Jobs as a leader, I think he was probably a pretty decent human being. He just, his ambition and his anxiety about making something perfect and next level and all the things like that is the archetype of Silicon Valley. It still is to this day. And, you know, I think, I don't know if you've had the chance at all, Leslie, to listen to or read, listen to interviews with Walter Isaacson or read any part of his Elon Musk biography yet. Oh, no, not yet. No. It's fascinating. And he's really playing with this archetype of the genius, the asshole innovator genius who mm-hmm. is, look, like he may be a dick and people may hate him, but he's, NASA's not able to do the shit he can do. Like he's single-handedly changed electric cars and made a, a dent in carbon footprint. Like there's this argument, Leslie, that I think is real where fine, you may be right. It's better for the humans to not be assholes and grind everybody down. But look where all the innovations have come. In fact, I heard Kara Swisher just absolutely freaking eviscerate um, Walter Isaacson for perpetuating that narrative that Mm -hmm. the evil grinding genius is the only way to get results. And I think that fundamentally is at the base of all of this grinding. 
is that in order to get those results, you have to grind people down. So what would you say to that archetype, that Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, although I hate to put those two in even the same category, but for sake of argument, what would you say to that? I think largely speaking, they belong in the same category. It's really interesting because there is no doubt that there is something really true about the idea that that archetype is very real. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. to think about it as being a cluster of traits that we have often seen go together where there is a certain amount of drive and ambition in and of themselves, not a bad thing, paired with a personality where the person's kind of an asshole. You know, like I'm just a certain level in some instances of sociopathy. I'm not here Mm -hmm. to diagnose anybody that I've never personally worked with, but- Well, that Elon Musk points in that direction, trust me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised and particularly with Jeff Bezos, I'm hearing in the background of this conversation is just the notion of greed and in some instances, like a really, really voracious kind of greed, you know, what the Buddhists the call bottomless, the bottomless, bottomless greed. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Buddhists call it the hungry ghost, right? Yes. Absolutely insatiable appetite that will never be quenched or satisfied. No. And for me, um, I'll just drop into this as a little quick little diversion because it's important to me is that there's just like a passion that I have that burns in my soul for the dynamic that so many people are operating with these days where with Jeff Bezos, for example, like raking in trillions of dollars while the people who are making that happen quite literally on the ground, on the floor of the warehouses are like peeing in bottles because they don't have time to take a break. Like there's so many real deal abuses, human labor violations that are occurring in that environment so that one person can rake in an extraordinary amount of cash. Because and, because there's an abundance of us that really need socks for our children's crazy sock day at school within 24 hours. Yeah, exactly. And his I mean, system will deliver that to us. Meanwhile, we don't fucking realize that people have to pee in cups in order for our crazy socks to be on our children. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And the whole paradigm is so like, again, kind of coming back to this idea of the paradigm that we have Mm. been living in and currently find ourselves in. It is such a broken paradigm that we've got the Waltons raking in billions of dollars while the people who work for Walmart on the floor are qualifying for federal benefits because their salary is not high enough to, they're eligible for food stamps. And so even if we think about Elon Musk and NASA, for example, it's really tricky because part of that equation is that we have underfunded NASA. So yeah. it's not just Musk's genius that is making that happen. It's really important. It's like the decisions that we collectively make about where our dollars ought to be that you know, the right. whole system is really messed up. But to take it back to those of us who are in it and we're not the CEO, let's say, and we have to make it work. You said at the very top of the hour, you said if we knew more about the way human psychology is, we would behave better. What do you think is probably the biggest misconception that would make the biggest difference in people's everyday experience? The number one thing that comes to mind for me right now when I think about the person that's a little bit more stuck in the middle with all of this stuff, take it away from the CEO and just sort of think about the person who's working in this environment, is that there is a lot of freedom and power that we can take back if we empower ourselves to do that. 
And part of what I mean when I say that is just that there is a way in which, and I see this over and over and over again, that people unconsciously participate in their own suffering. Say more about that. I think people are just sometimes so afraid. And a lot of this is wiring that goes way, way back. Like we have to factor that inside all of us is the brain of a toddler that was working for the approval of very specific people. That's exactly right, Leslie. Yeah, like we are, we don't change ages, we collect them. And inside of us is a rushing, Russian nesting doll Yeah, of like every age we've previously ever been. And the in the first three to four to six, you know, three to three to four being the most critical, moving on towards six and seven, these first initial years of life, we are learning how to be a person. Yes. And we are learning how to be a person in relationship with other people. And because a lot of people are just operating on their own programming and raising their children, how they were raised and that kind of stuff. There is a lot of times, a lot of fear that's baked into our nervous systems of like, what's going to happen if we make a mistake? What's going to happen if we're not perfect? What's going to happen if we're not always perfectly available the way our boss is demanding us to be available? Because it is a recapitulation of early childhood family dynamics. And what I see a lot in individual people is that if they were to really square themselves with what works for them, (laughs) kind of reminds me of how I got onto this call this morning saying, I'll just tell the listeners got onto this call with Bronwyn this morning being like, I'm slow in the morning. I can't help it. It's just how I am. (laughs) And then she proceeds to melt our faces off. So (laughs) when we know ourselves really well, and we know what sets us up for success, then we're better able to advocate for that. And we're better able to say, we're better able to negotiate and we're better able to say, just try this as an example. Hey, boss. I know you need me online at eight, but actually I really need until nine because I'm trying to get my kids out the door in the morning and it's chaos over here. How about instead I log on at nine and you can just trust that I will be all cylinders burning for the top two hours of the day. Like it just gives you a place to negotiate from when you know what your needs are. Yes. And a lot of times people are not, they're not going to be as unreasonable as we fear that they might be. It's like we don't advocate because we're so afraid of this kind of punishing parent (laughs) that we're maybe afraid someone's going to be. That's right. And meanwhile, if we just spoke up and said what our needs were, like maybe they would get met. Well, they're more likely to get met for sure. Mm -hmm. Also, I've I've seen time and again, when people finally stand in their power and ask kindly and warmly and with evidence or whatever you need to have in your argument baked in, that the person who's managing them grows in respect for them, right? Because as it is below, so it is above, right? If you can't advocate for yourself with me, your boss, you're not going to be able to advocate on behalf of our company with the customer. You're not going to be able to do what we need you to do in the world on behalf of our company if you can't even do that with me, your boss. 100%. And I think that we should never underestimate how much people change and grow. Yeah. Because like, let's say their children start doing the work and the next thing you're learning from your kids because they evolved past the paradigm you were raised in. And similarly, we have the ability to influence our managers, our leaders, hey, I just found this new bit of information. 
Turns out that actually there's this thing called the alpha brainwave state. It's super conducive to creativity. What do you say that I get out of the house to take a walk just to like let my juices flow on this newsletter you want me to send out? Like it's knowledge is power and most people are not beyond influence. Okay, so there's one thing I want to geek out with you about. Wait, actually, before we geek out, before we geek out, (laughs) I just want to take care of some specific business before I pick your brain, not pick your brain, but I want to geek out with you for a second. Um, Yeah, please. Leslie, you are in the midst of launching something specifically for folks in HR. But I want to just, I would be remiss if I didn't put a fine line under that. So just talk briefly about what this course is and how people can find information on it. Perfect. Thank you so much. So yeah, I, as a result of all of these phone calls that I had over the summer, I put together a six month program that I'm rolling out as we speak. But what it is, is a small group program that is designed specifically for people who work in HR, talent management, Mm. any kind of leadership role in the people space, as I like to think of it. Mm -hmm. And it's really designed to give people the experience of kind of getting their own cup filled up so that those benefits can radiate to the people that they lead and the people that they work with and even upward to the leaders that are above them. But it's really designed to give people an experience of kind of coming together and getting their needs met. So super practically speaking, what it's gonna look like is it's a six month program, starts in early November, ends in late April. Each month has a theme, which funnily enough is based on the six month program that you and I came up with when I employed your services as a coach, Bronwyn. So I just little plug for you there. I love it. I love it. I took my six. Yeah. Yeah. You helped me create this like six month journey. And I basically just remapped it so that Every month has a theme. The themes are things like this whole issue of like managing remote teams or bringing people back to the office. Like that's going to be its own month of like, how do we navigate all this hairy stuff? Amazing. And it's functionally speaking designed so that people can really do it on their own time, but there just are going to be two calls per month that hopefully people will show up to. And if they can't, they'll get the replay. One is where I'll be delivering information on the theme. Like here's all the data I have access to that will help you navigate this stuff at work and with your CEO and that kind of stuff. And then the other hour is just meant to get people to come together to process their thoughts and feelings. And if they have something coming up at work, they can chat about it with their colleagues and all of the other people in the group are going to be fellow HR leads and talent management and wellness peeps. So it's like, we can kind of create a hive mind around how are you solving this problem and what are you doing? And OMG guys, listen to this. And and obviously I'll be there to facilitate all of that and provide guidance. That's just so brilliant. So they can go find out more at lesliecar.com, correct? Exactly. C-A-R-R. C-A-R-R. And my first name is L-E-S-L-I-E. And people can even just email me at leslie at lesliecar.com and get y'all set up if this is interesting. I love it. Okay. Last few minutes, I want to geek out with you for a second. Because I'm so obsessed with this unpacking of Elon Musk as a leader. And I'm obsessed with Walter Isaacson getting lambasted for it, for lionizing and celebrating somebody who's such an asshole. I'm fascinated by all of it. But the most thing I'm most interested in, basically for my whole career of coaching, I have believed that inside each of us are many parts. That Russian nesting doll metaphor that you use, I 
absolutely believe that. And so part of my job as a coach, because I think about it in terms of communication, public speaking, things like that, I help people make systems to make sure the right Russian doll comes out to play at the right moment. Right. Yeah. That, that your best self comes forward for the press interview or the speaking engagement, yes. not your inner traumatized nine-year-old. Right. What I find exciting about this moment is that if I had to net out sort of the final analysis, I think that Walter Isaacson is offering the public about Elon Musk is that there are many Elon Musks inside of him. <laughs> and some of them are likable and some of them are fucking crazy. Yeah. And I want to just have you respond to this moment in the zeitgeist where we're finally understanding the multiplicity of the human personality. Imagine the sea change that's happening in corporate environments when people, instead of seeing their CEO as one person, they are understanding that depending on what's happening on that day, there are different versions of that one person showing up and each one of those versions has to be handled just a little differently, right? I'm sort of in awe at the depth of the question because I think you're so spot on. Mm -hmm. And at first, when you were asking your question, I was thinking to myself, like, I am not an expert enough specifically on Elon Musk to comment on him. Like, haven't read the book yet, don't know him. But there is no doubt that what you're saying is true in general about people. And it's interesting to think that on the one hand, there are all of our previous ages and all of the life experiences that we literally have ever had that are inside of us, have shaped our neurology, all of that stuff. It's all in there. But we also have these different things, often called parts. It's a very, very handy way of thinking about the human mind and the complexities of human personalities. And I think that something really does shift very profoundly when we realize that there is a thing that is true for everybody, including us, which is that we can contain not only multitudes, but oftentimes parts of us that seemingly are even at odds with each other because we can embrace or just contain so many contradictions, right? So maybe there's a part of us that feels really social and has a lot of social needs, but another part of us that is kind of introverted and really likes downtime and sometimes needs to be alone. And you don't have to decide which one of those things is true for you. You can, both of those things can be true, but kind of going back to this idea of what we were saying before, that everybody is always doing their best. One of the reasons why I so deeply believe that to be true is because even when people are behaving in a manner that feels counterintuitive to what would even, let's say, benefit them, Really random example that's coming to mind. Imagine someone who is drinking alcoholically in a manner that is really destructive, where you look at this person and you think to yourself like, oh my goodness, like the profound, yeah, like you're working against yourself kind of so profoundly. And yet, if you were to really dig into it on a psychological level, okay, well, what purpose does that behavior serve? If you have been so traumatized that the very experience of going through life awake and aware and unnumbed is so incredibly painful that you can't do that without chemical assistance, then you can sort of see that in its own ironic way, this thing that looks so destructive actually has a good, weird word to use, but a good intent to it, which is that it's trying to keep you comfortable. It's trying to keep you safe. It's trying, it thinks it's showing up in your best interest. And I think that where 
human psychology really comes to life for me is really like how we create change Mm. is to lean into that understanding, right? To start to have a dialogue with this thing that is operating unconsciously in an attempt to benefit us. It's like, okay, well, what happens if we work with that? We can shift it. We can bring it out into the light. We can change it. Instead of suppressing it or making it wrong or making it bad, we can be in dialogue with it and negotiate with it in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so to try it back to sort of what it's like to relate to another person, I just would say, absolutely, this is going to be true of all of the people that you work with too. Yeah, yeah. In fact, what's so funny, I had a conversation over the weekend with somebody, not in my professional life, but in my personal life. And this is a human being that I love very much. I don't see very often, but there are definitely multitudes inside of him. Mm-hmm. And the person that was on the phone with me was the asshole version of yeah. this person. And for years, I've just tolerated it because I know it's just like clouds across the sky that eventually it will pass. But this time I said to myself, you know what? I deserve to protect myself from this weather pattern. So I'm going to hang up. I'm going to give him the option to bring forward the part that works for me. And if there is not an acceptance of that invitation, I'm hanging up. And I did. And he responded. He responded. He apologized. He was like, you were right to hang up. I love that. And there's something that I'll add to it, which is just that. So first of all, how fantastic that not only you stood up for yourself and that resonated with him, like drawing the boundary. That was important feedback for him. The way he was behaving was not working. Mm -hmm. And I think something that can be helpful for all of us to not be so intimidated when we're in a situation when someone is being an asshole like that is to be curious about what part of that person Mm. thinks that's even necessary, right? That there is a self-protective instinct that yes, is on overdrive, like he's overdoing it, but there is on some level like a fear pattern running that if he doesn't come out hard imagining two dogs that are like fighting over a bowl of food. Like it's that there's this like base animal instincts of, I have to really fight to get my needs met. But, you know, so that is related to some old version of him that is in scarcity and fear. And if we knew enough about him, we would say probably for good reason. And all of this is just to say, sometimes when we can hear someone that way, and not take it personally. It's almost like it gives us handles on something, right? It can be less scary if we don't take it personally. And And 99% of the time, this kind of stuff has nothing to do with us. 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also what you're getting at, and this is where we can kind of bring it home, is Mm. one of the ways I think we thrive today, despite the insanity that is all around us and uncertainty and all that good stuff, Mm. is perspective. And it's very, very, very hard to have appropriate perspective when we are in that place of terror, fear, anxiety, all the things. And what was coming up for me, because I was listening to your answer on that and the ability to see people and wonder why they're over-indexing on this or that or the other thing. I think we get into trouble as humans when we believe that we live or die based on how a conversation goes or how someone treats us in a conversation, (laughs) right? And I've worked for deeply narcissistic people before, like actual narcissists in the flesh, in my opinion. And I have been on the receiving end of the consequences 
of saying, no, you may not speak to me like that. And they do have power over you. But the reality is it's temporary, right? If we're working for someone who doesn't respond well to us upholding a, a boundary with clarity and kindness, they we may get depositioned in our jobs. We may lose our jobs, but you know what happens? We find other ones. <laughs> like we don't have to stay in environments that are grinding us to dust. Am I right, Leslie? You are 100% right. And also I think something that I'll leave people with because I know we have to wrap up is that- yeah there can be a lot of learning and growth that comes from this stuff. I don't think that we always have to remain engaged with the narcissist for the learning or the growth, but in the same way that you had to kind of go through a couple rounds with this guy in order to finally get in touch with that part of yourself that was able and willing to set a boundary. And then he took that feedback and lo and behold, it all worked out well. Like we live and we learn all the time. And if we embrace the process of being alive through this lens of like, what are we learning here? How are we growing? Exponential things can happen from that place. That's right. And exponential inside of ourselves, exponential as those who witness it around us. It's a positive feedback loop. Well, Leslie, thank you from the bottom of my deepest soul. <laughs> thank you every, so much, you too, Bronwyn. Every moment I spend in conversation with you or even just in presence with you is just a gift to me. I, the feeling is so mutual. And today was such a great example of that. I just love jamming with you. So thank you so much for having me on here today. Hey, if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. Lastly, if your company or organization needs a high voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics. And you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. That's Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Take care and shine on. We need your light.